0: We're in a series that we're calling Game of Thrones where we are looking at Saul and David's life and we're looking at this uh, kingdom of Israel and how they went from having no king, being in a theocracy, to having a king. And the big question that we've been putting over this whole thing is this question of our heart because what's happening on the scale of the nation of Israel is reflected in our own heart. There is a throne at the center of you. And somebody gets to sit there. Somebody does. It's not you, though. You get to open the door for the king to come in. But who is the king that you have allowed to come and be seated on that throne? We hope it's the king of the universe. This incredible thought that the king of the universe, we've opened up our series in Revelation, looking at God and this story of these angels around him and the glory of God on this cosmic heavenly throne. That same God who sits on that throne wants to take up residence in little old you, in your heart. What an incredible thought. So that's the overarching concept for what we're doing here. We talked about Saul and his journey to becoming a king when he woke up one day and didn't know anything that was going to happen. He had no clue, and he had a problem in his life. His dad's donkeys had wandered off, and he had to go find them. And by the, the that morning, he's off on this journey, Three days later, he's anointed as Israel's king. And we ask this question, could our problems in life be God's providence? How tuned are our eyes and our ears to see what God is putting into place, what God is doing so that things can happen? Then we looked at the fall of Saul, Saul's slide, his journey into envy over David. He had kind of had this little heart and he had tried to take things into his own hands and not honor the Lord and God had said, your time is done and he was going to have somebody else anointed as king and this little kid, this little twerp named David comes along. and All the women make up a song about David and they start singing this song and Saul it's this heart of envy that takes his eyes off of God and puts them on the competition. And it became deadly to his own heart, Saul's heart, and even to the life of David. Today, we're going to journey down that road a little bit more, this dynamic of David and Saul. The big thing that we're going to be touching on today, if you have your notes in your bullets and pull it out. This is the very first thing there in those notes. We're going to be talking about patience. Living in patience. We're in a season of needing to be patient. We're in an interim season here. Our hearts are longing for what God is going to do next and who he's going to bring us, who will shepherd this church and guide us in this next season. And we're having to live in patience. Some of you in your home life are having to live in patience. We have a three-year-old now, as of two weeks ago, more than ever before, Ashley and I are having to live a life of patience. It's really crazy. Even just this morning, as I was holding her while we were singing a song, she like makes like, Daddy, let me give you a kiss. So I go to kiss her and she sticks out her tongue and licks me on the lips. As I'm kiss her. That just happened. I just had to wipe that off right before she left this morning. It takes some patience. Well, we got to deal with it. So let's look at our story in the story of Saul and of David before Goliath, before the song that the ladies of Jerusalem sang about David. David is out tending his sheep and nobody is paying David a lick of attention. And God has rejected Saul. God has said, I'm done with Saul. And he talks to the prophet Samuel the priest Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I'm done with Saul. He's rejected. You are to go anoint the nation's next king. And Samuel mourns this because Samuel isn't Saul's enemy. He's Saul's mentor. And don't you hate it when that person that you believed in, that person that you had confidence in, lets everybody down? I mean, the eggs of Samuel's life were in Saul's basket, and Saul has let him down. And God tells Samuel, enough mourning. It's time to do this thing. Go anoint the new king. The new king is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And Samuel knows who this guy Jesse is, so he's going to head off to do it. But he asked the Lord first in 1 Samuel 16, verse 2, He asked this, and I'd love for you to read it with me. Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Saul had a temper, man. He did not want to let go of this thing that God had given him. It wasn't Saul's to begin with. God gave it to him, but Saul was holding on to this throne, this kingdom. And he was afraid. And so God tells Samuel, don't worry about it. Go to Bethlehem, take a sacrifice, go find Jesse and anoint one of his sons. When you get there, I'll tell you what you do next. And so Samuel shows up, and the leaders of Bethlehem come out to meet him as he's coming into town. And the Bible tells us that the leaders of Bethlehem come out trembling. They're scared. Samuel's here. Uh, This little old man, Samuel, but they knew. God's spirit rested upon Samuel and said, like, what business do you have here in our town? You know, you mean trouble when you come around. You bring God with you and things happen. And Samuel, they, they have to ask him, they're like, do you come in peace to Bethlehem? <laughs> he has come in peace. And Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he starts meeting with the family. And he asks Jesse to have his sons come in. And so Jesse brings his sons in and lines them all up, oldest to youngest. And Samuel starts going down the line, looking at one after the other. The oldest son, Eliam, goes to be, he's got to be the one. I mean, everything happens for the oldest kid. Like that, we are, I'm the oldest of three. We're in the position of privilege, you know, as the oldest sibling. uh, We get this special treatment and the special thing. Surely it's this son. It's got to be the one. And God says, no, it's not him. And then one of the best lines in all of scripture is given by God to Samuel. It's a a verse you're very familiar with. Chapter, uh, verse seven, let's read it here. Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, isn't this interesting? Because if we look at Saul, when Saul is anointed, He's the tallest. He's the most handsome in all of Israel. He's the person that we all would look at and say, obviously, this is the next person. But what God tells Samuel is, don't judge by his height. Don't judge by his appearance. I'm looking for somebody with the right heart. Why? Because I want to take up residence there in that space. And I want to reign and rule. In that space. God uses some strange things. God uses some strange people. But He knows what's real here in the heart. So He goes down the line. Is it a bit of dab Nope. Next son? Nope. I can't say all their names. All seven sons. Nope, 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 nope. Go down through the line. And God hasn't affirmed any of them. And so Samuel asks Jesse, are these all your sons? Like God directly told me to come here and find you and anoint one of your sons. Are these all your sons? When Jesse says, well, there's just the littlest one. He's just a kid. He's not that great. He sleeps <laughs> out in the field with the sheep. Stinks by heaven. He just stays out there. <laughs> you don't want him. I mean, look at the oldest. Surely he's got to be the one. Samuel says, no, go get him. And so they go get David, little David, the little kid who stinks like sheep, who's been living out in the field, and they bring him in. God tells Samuel, This is the one. Anoint this one. Now, if you're a teenager like David was, and you get anointed to be a king, what is the first thing you're going to say to your older brothers? They're all lined up right there. They've all just witnessed this thing happen. You're the littlest, and your brothers are seeing all this happen, and all of a sudden they're finding out you're going to be a king. What would you do? I want to say, check this out, guys. Go get me some food. Go get me some new clothes. You're carrying me around everywhere we're going. I'm the king now. But that wasn't going to happen. In fact, it wasn't going to happen for another 15 years. David wasn't going to get a taste of what being the king was going to be like for 15 years. This whole thing kind of reminds me of the 90s. Who here is a child of the 90s? I grew up in the 90s. Okay. You're a child of the 90s. Us five, we're going to have a really good time now. This is for us. Okay. And everybody else, this is not for you. But children of the 90s, you're going to know about this. Lion King. Simba, there's this song in there that I want us to watch. But David, like, could have had this going on for him. And he could have thought, you know, here I am. This is me now. I'm the next king. Let's get this thing started. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He is able to somehow, as this kid, recognize that God's timing is the best timing. That the, when God puts it together, that's when it's the best thing. It's hard for us when we think we know what should happen next and God isn't moving. It's difficult. Because we've got it in our minds that we know what can we wait on God's time. As we would grow up, He'd fight Goliath. He'd have the support of the nation. He'd have the support of Saul's army. But he still didn't force himself in there as king. He'd have support of Saul's family. Saul's children adored David. And he didn't force himself in as king. He waited. And he waited. And he waited through some very tough things. Saul begins to go crazy. He tries to pin David to the wall with a spear twice. Saul seeks to be rid of David by having him killed in battle. He appoints him as a commander of a thousand, thinking that this same zeal that David used to take down Goliath would cause him to charge into some battle that he and a thousand men couldn't win. And so he puts him in charge of these men, trying to get him killed. Everything Saul does for the next 15 years is trying to destroy David as David is seeking to serve and elevate Saul. What a weird relationship. Saul is trying to eliminate David, and David somehow recognizes that it is his responsibility to elevate Saul. He promises to David, one of his daughters, for a mere price. I forgot. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what the price was. You go look it up. we uh, got our young people with us today. And I uh, probably don't want you to have to answer some weird questions when you get home. But he offers that David go kill the city Philistines. Bring me this part of their body. And you can marry my, uh, my daughter. And David does it double. And they do this thing. And his daughter loves Saul. Saul becomes jealous. And it becomes public. And he orders his son Jonathan and all Jonathan's servants to go out after David and try to kill him. Jonathan appeals to his dad and receives a sort of reprieve for David, but another conflict with the Philistines arises. David once again finds great success in battle, and Saul attempts to kill David again. Saul sends men to arrest David in his own home, and Saul's daughter, David's wife, foils the effort and helps David escape. It becomes evident to David that he must no longer attempt to get along with Saul living and working beside him. He has to live on the run like a fugitive until God brings about some type of remedy. He lives in the wilderness, still fighting battles for the people, kind of like Robin Hood, fighting for the people, battling the Philistines, but he's not living in a castle. Instead, he's living in a cave in the wilderness. What kind of life for a king? And I could imagine that in David's heart, there were times when there was some jealousy and some bitterness that might have started to rise up. And yet every time he was able to stamp it down and say, not yet. It's not God's time yet. I still need to wait. So we get to this story then in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where Saul heads out with 3,000 soldiers to go hunt the wilderness for David. And while they're out hunting for David, this is just kind of the theme, I guess, of this morning, Saul has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> a lot of rearing. Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so they're out looking for David. Saul has to stop in 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning with verse 3, is where we'll pick up this story. Would you read it with me? We're going to read quite a bit here. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do it as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's road. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of the men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been trying and hunting to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, From evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyways? Shouldn't he spend his time chasing the one who is worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord, therefore, judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. Wow! What an incredible story. What an incredible story. Knife in hand. What if in that cave, knife in hand, David had said, I just can't wait. To be king. It could have been over right there as he slit Saul's throat. And how many of us, knife in hand, knowing God's promise, being persecuted, being hunted down, threatened by somebody with the opportunity to end it all? How many of us would have picked up that knife to take God's timing into our hands and do this thing? What an incredible story. Read on. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry, and he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? What an incredible story. And it doesn't last long. (coughs) David spares Saul's life. And just a short time later, Saul is back at it again. Hunting David down. Trying to kill him. Sending his men after him. Going out again. And you know what? Again, just two chapters later in your Bible, from Samuel 24 to Samuel 26, we read that David has another opportunity, where Saul has no idea what's going on, and God has delivered him, or the men are saying to him, "Right to David's hand. One night, David sneaks into Saul's camp, and he's laying there sleeping, Saul is, and one of David's men says, look, here's Saul, he's literally laying asleep right in front of you. There's a spear right over there. You can pick it up. And with one swift movement, this could all be over. In fact, I'll do it for you, David. You're using God's name to say, God would want you to do it. It's okay for us to murder him. You're going to be the next king anyways. We all know it. You're just doing God's work for him. Verse 9 of 1 Samuel 26 is what David says. Read it with me. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. David was willing to wait on the timing of the Lord. What can we learn from waiting and being patient? Let's look at a few things. First, one of the things we can learn in our times of waiting, and our times of needing to be patient, is that God exists beyond time. God exists beyond time. The delay in David's becoming Israel's king is not uh, unusual. It is typical of the way that God brings about his promises and his purposes. To talk about it concisely, God is not in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. We're in a hurry. This morning, many of us were in a hurry. I was in a hurry to get out of the house and get here to church. God is never in a hurry. He has all the time in the world. In fact, He created all the time in the world. God exists beyond time. He is not limited by time. Throughout the Bible, I find God promising things to people over and over again that they must wait to receive. God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child. This one who would be the next in this lineage that God had promised. And now they're in their 90s. They've had to wait 25 years. They think it's never going to happen. Does God deliver? Yes, on His timing. God promises Noah there was going to be a flood. It was a long time between the promise and the flood actually happening. Long enough that Noah's building this ark and the neighbors are coming around making fun of him like, where are you going out here in the desert? With this boat, what are you doing? God made Jacob wait 14 years to find the wife that he wanted. Joseph had to wait a considerable amount of time to see his dad and his family after being sold into slavery. The Israelites had to wait 430 years in captivity in Egypt before returning to the promised land. And for 2,000 years, the saints of God have been waiting for the promise that God would return and make all things new. For 2,000 years, we have been waiting for the Lord's timing. Waiting is a part of the divine design of things. You're waiting, you're needing to wait for what God is going to do or what God has promised is not an accident. It's not because God has forgotten you. It's a part of it. It happens this way. The second thing that we that I would learn about waiting that I try to bring to you today is that waiting is a form of adversity, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. When we wait, it tests our faith and our endurance. And that's for good, not bad. Waiting is a test of your faith. It's a test of your endurance. Paul writes it in Romans chapter 5. He says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation and this hope will not lead us to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Abraham and Sarah had to wait for that promised son and at least... One of their failures in the area of patience, on waiting on God to fulfill his promise, they tried to find the solution on their own time. And they came up with all kinds of crazy plans, but none of them were the right plan. None of them were God's plan. The Israelites sinned in making a golden calf as described in Exodus 32. It was their failure uh, to not wait the 40 days for Moses to return from the top of Mount Sinai. They just couldn't handle that time of waiting. The church in Corinth and the New Testament had lots of problems, and one of their problems was waiting. They could not wait for God to bring justice, and so they were taking one another to court all the time, suing each other. They couldn't wait for their their brethren to arrive, so they would go ahead and start their meal. Instead of waiting on the travelers to get there, they'd overindulge themselves with food and drink, and they turned the Lord's Supper into a sham. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. They could not wait for the fulfillment of God's promises regarding full spirituality. And so they embraced teachers and teachings of triumph mentalism where you can have it all now. You don't have to wait on God to do this for you. And we see that even today. We have a hard time waiting. But when we wait, it tests our faith and tests our endurance. Young people are waiting to grow up. I mean, I think every young person has that moment in their life where they're like, I just can't wait until I'm grown. I just can't wait until I'm on my own and out of the house. And Boy, oh boy, as adults, how do we regret that? And be like, oh man, I wish I could go back to those and just tell myself how crazy I am. And there's all kinds of things in life that God instructs us to wait on. Again, for young people, well, for any unmarried person who is entering into a relationship, we're instructed to wait on that marriage relationship. We're instructed to wait. Waiting on the Lord is what sexual purity is all about. There's a lot of talk about safe sex, but
1: today there's not a
0: lot of talk about abstinence. And this is because waiting is taboo. Virginity is disdained as a curse, not as a gift that we give to one another. Waiting on God for the joys and and happiness of a fulfilled marriage relationship. We can't do it. Forgot this. <laughs> Some couples are waiting for kids. Most parent has to wait at least nine months for a kid, and a number of parents wait much, much longer. Many wait for recognition and reward for their work, while others take shortcuts and seem to get all the credit. Almost every Christian has some form of pain or suffering as you wait. You want deliverance. And all of us, every one of us here today, have unsaved loved ones, relatives, friends, for whose salvation we are waiting. I know a lady named Vicki, who has been praying for over a decade. She started praying. Every time in a church gathering, somebody would say, what can we pray about? What are the prayer requests? Every time she made it a point, she made it a decision that she was going to pray for her grandson's salvation. And for 10 years, she has, every time the floor is open for prayer requests, she'll be the first person to speak. And she'll say, I'd like to pray for my grandson. That he would know the Lord. She's waiting for that still to this day. All of us are waiting for the coming of our Lord in his kingdom, and strangely enough, a number of us wait for death. We wish that the Lord would just take us now, or even our loved one. Just take them now, Lord. But God calls on us to wait. It's a testing of our faith and our perseverance. The third thing that I'd point to you about waiting is that Satan would love to capitalize on your waiting, he would love to capitalize on those moments. When your mind begins to think, how could this be over now? How could I take God's hands into my own hands and do these things on my own accord and on my own will? Satan tries to put the unbeliever's mind at ease by pointing to divine delays as proof that God either does not know or does not care. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle wrote this, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Now here, this was like within a hundred years. What happened to the promise that Jesus was going to return? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. And now here we are, two thousand years, and the scoffer would come and say, what about Jesus? What about these promises? Does he really do what he says he's going to do? Satan seeks to undermine the faith and obedience of God's children by deceiving us about God's goodness, and even in, divine delays. In times of waiting, Satan wants us to doubt that God's promises will ever be fulfilled. He seeks to get us to act independently of God, to obtain these things on our own, rather than to wait for God to give them to us. He seeks to raise doubts about the goodness of God, as though God is withholding something good from us out of pettiness. He works at promoting distrust in God, especially in God's word. He prompts us to disobey God and follow our own judgment. He urges us to seize the moment, to use the questionable means, to pick up a knife in the cave, to use it as our own means to an end. He would love to take advantage of that, and so the believer has to be vigilant in times of waiting. The fourth thing that I point out to you about waiting is that some waiting is not pious. Sometimes we wait when we should be working at the instruction of God, sometimes we're prone to wait when we should be working. And prone to work when we should be waiting. Waiting to do what we know to be right, what God has commanded us to do, is not righteous. It's sin. In James chapter 4, verse 17, we read that the man who knows what he ought to do and does not do it has sinned. If God has instructed you to make restitution with your brother or sister, if God has instructed you towards repentance, if God has instructed you to do something, even if it's hard, when you delay that and you say, let me just wait a minute to just be sure that that's what God wants, then you are living in sin. Some waiting is not righteous waiting. So we really need to, by prayer and communication with God, we really need to be able to discern when we wait and when we work. The fifth thing, waiting is not necessarily a time of passivity. Have you ever watched what people do while they're waiting? Some people can sit and do absolutely nothing. It is incredible to me. Some people sit and look straight ahead. I don't, what are they thinking about while they're doing <laughs> right? For me, I gotta be doing something. Like my, I'll be twitching and I gotta get my hands on something, I gotta be do something do something. There are constructive things to do while one waits. David waited for his time as king, but that was a very busy time in his life. David did much more than flee for his life. David delivered the people and he did good for the people and he served them and he served Saul. And one of the things we can do while we wait is to praise God and pray just as David and others did Praise God and pray, and while we may not be able to do what we would like to do the most, we can do what God has given us to do now. Let me apply that to our time in this interim season. While we wait for what we want God to do, what should we be doing now? What should we be doing now? What kind of communication should we be having with our brothers and sisters to be sure that this body in this time stays functional. What should we do to serve one another and bring one another along until that time comes when God does what he's going to do? What can we do? What has God tasked you to do in this time? Alright, so box I. Ah, finally, we can be assured that God always makes it worth the wait. When you wait righteously, when you wait for that divine appointment, God is always going to make it worth the wait. When you leave today, you have options. You can drive into Greenfield and get a hamburger at McDonald's. Or you could go get a gourmet meal where you'd have to sit down, place an order, and wait. Right? Right? You could. I think one is better than the other. (laughs) I think one tastes better than the other. This is because great meals don't happen quickly or easily, no matter what a commercial will tell you. I've never seen or heard of anyone putting food into a microwave because they thought that it would be tastier than putting it in the oven. The microwave just doesn't cook the same way. It gets it done faster But the end result isn't better. We have this thing in our life, me and Ashley, when it comes to leftover pizza. Ashley just doesn't care. I don't understand it. She'll take leftover pizza. She'll throw it in the microwave for two minutes. It'll be like a rubber band. (laughs) And she'll try to chew through it. I can't handle that. I can't. i got to turn the oven on.
1: Set it. Put it in
0: there. Wait the 10, 15 minutes it may take for it to get warmed up right and then take it out and enjoy it. Some okay. things are Amen. worth the wait. What? Amen. Okay. All right. I love you, Ashley. I love you. We want to use the microwave. God may be saying, use the oven. God's plans and promises are not of the microwave variety. God slow cooks. God puts the crack pot on and lets it simmer all day long. God takes his time in doing these things to bring out the very best. And when we take the time, the flavor begins to develop and the stuff begins to happen. And if you slow cook, things begin to go together and the end product is so much better. You can almost always plan on the fact that God will make you wait for what is best. He is never late. He is seldom quick. But this fact I can assure you, when God's plan is for you to wait, he will make it worth it in the end. So let's learn from David that waiting is a normal part of our Christian life you're going to be tempted to shortcut waiting. This would be sin. Others are often willing to help us with such shortcuts to say, look, God is doing this thing. Is it really God? His purposes and promises and his good time are what's best. Let's be assured that while we wait. God is working in us to prepare for us the good things that lay ahead. and Let's not doubt that we will see them. Let's devote ourselves to doing the good Know we ought to do, doing what we are able to do while we wait. I invite the praise team to come up. And we'll use this song as the benediction today, but as they come up and get set, I want to pray for you and for us as a church body in this time. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Lord, in this moment, you offer to us a challenge. It's hard to wait, it's hard to wait for the things that you promise. Some of us are waiting for something in our homes. Some of us are waiting for something in a relationship. Some of us have been pouring ourselves out to you on the behalf of someone else who is far from you. And we're waiting for that day when they may be changed. Some of us are waiting for what's next here at Brown's Chapel. And it's tough to wait. But God, in this moment, would you encourage our hearts? Help us to stamp down the times where we may want to rise up and take matters into our own hands and try to solve your problems for you. To remember that when we wait on you, what you will do is the best thing. Whatever it is that we need to be doing in this time, whatever you have instructed us to do, the battles that we do need to face today while we wait for the big thing in the end, God, would you help us and go with us? I just want to pray for you now as a group uh, in this moment. I would like for you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed as I look over the room now what I want to do is just have the opportunity to pray for you if there's something in your life that you are waiting for that seems like God has promised it but just isn't here yet. I want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand so that I can know. I see that. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yes, I see that. Let's pray. God, For many of us in this room, there is something that our hearts yearn for. It could be something that you've promised to us. It may be something that we desire. And it's not outside of your will for us. It's not outside of something that you've commanded right or wrong. It's just something that we're waiting for. And God, in this moment, for these who have expressed that today, to say, I'm waiting. God, I pray that you would gird them up. God, I pray that you give them your spirit. I just rebuke the enemy right now who would love to come and work his way in and say, see, God's promises aren't real. No, we just cast all that out today and say, in this time, we will wait patiently for what you are going to do. God, give us eyes like yours. Give us ears like yours in this day to see and hear the things that you see and hear. And we long for that moment when you will fulfill these promises. Now, Lord, move on us. Teach us in these days what it means to wait divinely, to wait expectantly, to anticipate you're good. And all of us wait for that day. You will make things right and make things new. Thank you for Jesus. Your wonderful name that we pray.